Shalom once again, everyone. I'm Bill Cloud, and I want to welcome you to our latest Hebrew treasure. In this installment, we're going to discuss the Hebrew word keter, keter, which is most often understood to be something that stands above all else. It's something that is supreme. In fact, an interesting little sidebar here, the Arabic equivalent of the word keter, keter or katar, is the highest hump of the camel, or it's the cupola on a building. But in Hebrew, keter is a crown, as in the crown of a monarch or king. Now, I should point out that there are several Hebrew words translated as crown in the scripture, such as zer, and another word, atara. And frankly, those words are found much more frequently than our word, keter. However, throughout Jewish commentary, we find that keter is the word most often associated with the creator and his crown. That is to say, his supreme authority and his sovereignty as the ruler of the universe, even though his actual crown is never really addressed, at least not explicitly. Now, there are some scholars who believe that the word kerer, used as crown, may actually be a borrowed Persian word. However, we do see that there is places in Scripture, or there are places in Scripture, where keter is interpreted as crown, as in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 18. It says this, The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned. And there's our root word there. And in the form yachtiru, they are crowned with knowledge. Now, perhaps there are multiple Hebrew words translated as crown, like zer, natara, and keter, because there are different types of crowns in the scripture. For instance, the uh, three of the vessels that are in the tabernacle and later the temple were adorned with crowns, the crown on the altar of incense, the crown on the table of shubrit, and the crown, of course, on the Ark of the Covenant. And by the way, the Hebrew term used in those instances is not keter, but zer. Now, rabbinical tradition teaches that each of these crowns, that is the crowns on these three pieces of furniture, represents other crowns that is found in Scripture or is alluded to by Scripture. For instance, the crown on the table of Shubred is said to, re said to represent the crown of kingship. The one atop the altar of incense represents the crown of priesthood. And the crown of the Ark of the Covenant, it's believed to symbolize the crown of the Torah itself which is interesting because, if you'll remember, both priest and king are subject to the authority of the Torah. And it was within the Ark of the Covenant, which by the way is God's throne on earth, where the tablets of the law or the Torah were kept. Now, an interesting sidebar to this interpretation is the fact that the numerical value of the word keter, which is 620 by the way, it's equivalent to the number of Hebrew letters found in the Ten Commandments. And if you consider rabbinical tradition to be of great importance, you might also consider the fact that, at least according to rabbinical tradition, the value of the word keter, kaf tav resh, is also equivalent to the 613 mitzvot found in the Torah plus the seven so-called Noahide laws. Now, I'm bringing this out not as an advocate or an adversary of the notion, just as a point of interest. Now, the root word, katar, spelled identically, means to surround or 
to encircle, to enclose something. And so the crowns that were affixed to the tabernacle furnishings actually enclosed or surrounded the top of these articles and therefore was a crown. An example of qatar used in the context of surrounding is found in Psalm 22, verse 12. And by the way, this, I believe, is prophetically speaking of the Messiah as he spoke. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. Kitruni. And there is that root word there. In this particular instance, the encircling or the surrounding has a negative connotation, unfortunately. However, most of the time, the encircling or the surrounding is to have a positive effect. And the background to this concept is discovered within the letters of the word Keter itself. Specifically, the initial letter of Keter, that is the Kaf, and its unique meaning, factors heavily into the themes that we find in the word Keter. So, looking at the word, or the letter Kaf, as a noun, it means palm, as in the palm of someone's hand. And so when people clasp palms, or they shake hands, it could be interpreted as being emblematic of a relationship. If two people were to clasp hands tightly, that could be presumed to be a strong bond between those two people. When we wish to work closely with someone on a project or in a relationship, what have you, we might say we're joining hands with that person. And so the clasping of hands or palms relates to the idea of surrounding or encircling in the sense that through a relationship, and particularly a close relationship, you stand with others. Now, when someone places their palm, cough, upon the head of another, that is symbolic of pronouncing a blessing upon them and consequently implying a willingness to protect them, to have oversight for them. And now, as God's people, we understand that He is the one who places His palm, His hand, upon our head with the intent to bless and protect, and if you will, surround us and encircle us. And so he places his hand, his palm, upon the crown of our head. And so you could say that in this manner, we are crowned by our king. For our part, we are to submit to his authority and submit to his sovereignty in acknowledgement that we are in need of his blessing and we desire his protection. In fact, Kaf as a verb means to subdue. And so when God places his palm upon our head, it's not an act of aggression to force us against our will into submission, but it's intended to bring us to the point of realizing that he desires only what is in our best interest. And so consequently, we willingly conform to his will. Furthermore, that which he desires to bring about with his hands his palm, if you will, is ultimately derived from his crown, keter, that is his sovereignty. In short, we want him, we need him to encircle and surround us with his presence. Now this thought brings to mind a favorite passage of mine from the Psalms, and it's found in Psalm 34, verse 7, and it says this, The angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear him and delivers them. Now, the word keter is not present in this verse, but the concept is definitely there because those who fear God have the promise 
of angelic protection, God's representatives, his messengers, as they surround those who fear God. Now, another word that is related, not phonetically, but in theme to Keter is kippah. In fact, the word kaf forms the base of this word kippah. And of course, the kippah is the head covering that Jewish males wear to show that God's palm, his kaf, and therefore his blessing and protection is upon the crown of their head. And by the way, just as an aside, the English word cap most likely is derived from the Hebrew kippah. Now, among the family words related to keter, crown, is katar, which means literally to produce. It's more commonly translated as to smoke in the sense that you produce the smoke by causing something to smoke. And so if you're trying to understand that, think in terms of what happened when the priest put incense upon the coals of the altar, as in Leviticus chapter 16. And he shall take a censer full of burning, burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. Of course, this is referring to what goes on on Yom Kippur. But actually, the word katar is related to incense as that which was placed upon the golden altar of incense, one of those pieces of furnishings, remember, that was adorned with a crown. And he would put this incense there to make smoke. Also, you should recall that rabbinical teaching associated with the crown of the golden altar, it is associated with the crown of priesthood, which in turn brings me to this point. God ordained that Israel was, were to be, or as a nation, they were to be a kingdom of priests. And in the New Testament, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter echoed this concept when he said this of believers in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so what I glean from that is this. As his priests, we are to perform a function for the kingdom of heaven, and it's specific. We are to offer sacrifices, sacrifices of praise. Our service is intended to produce an outcome. And what is it exactly that we are to produce? Well, first of all, I believe we are to produce praise, as I said, because not only do we express adoration for our king, but also our praise has the ability to draw others toward the light and out of the darkness. And so in that sense, we produce fruit. Furthermore, as we live a life of servitude to him, or as Paul put it, when we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, we make smoke. We offer a sweet smelling aroma unto the Lord. And we who are priests, having been given crowns to wear, so to speak, by being a living sacrifice, acknowledge that our priestly crowns are secondary to the one possessed by the King of Kings. In other words, the crowns we wear are due to the fact that we are in service to Him. And as priests of the Most High, we submit ourselves to His sovereignty because, frankly, 
That is the example given to us by our heavenly high priest, who, by the way, is the one who wore a crown of thorns. Now, in my mind, this concept connects to the scene that's presented to us in the book of Revelation in chapter 4, and we'll begin to read in verse 10 and go through verse 11. It says, The 24 elders fell down before him that sat on the throne. Of course, they had thrones as well, but they fell down before him who sat upon the throne and worshiped him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor for you have created all things and for your pleasure they are and were created. And so service to him alludes to the willingness on our part to deny ourselves in deference to his will, which then brings us to another concept conveyed to us by the word keter, and that is this. It means to wait or to restrain oneself. You see, when we acknowledge that God is the one who alone is sovereign, then we will be provoked to restrain ourselves from doing what is right in our own eyes. We will learn to wait upon the Lord. The Aramaic uh, Aramaic understanding of that word is to wait with expectation. And I'm going to suggest to you that in service to God, that is exactly what we find ourselves doing so very often as we strive to live a life that's dedicated to God. I mean, what we end up finding is in there, we're in these situations where we're having to wait with great expectation of what he wishes us to do or what is he going to do? When is he going to do it? And that thought brings us to another interesting point about the word keter. As I said, it's translated as crown. But as a crown in the scripture, it only appears three times in all of scripture. And all three times, it's in one book. That is the book of Esther, which is why, as I stated earlier, some scholars believe that keter may be a borrowed word from the Persians. Now, Esther, of course, is the story of a young Benjamite woman, actually known as Hadassah, who finds herself living in Persia. Later on, in fact, becomes the queen of Persia. And as a circumstance arises, finds herself having to wait with great expectation for God's purposes to come to pass in her life and to wait with great expectation to see if deliverance will come to her people. The irony of this situation is that in the book of Esther, not once is God mentioned, not even alluded to, and yet his handiwork, or shall I say his palm, is obviously at work to bless Hadassah and to surround his people with divine protection. And in the end, we see that he doesn't have to be mentioned explicitly for us to realize that he's always working behind the scenes orchestrating events to his liking. And so Esther teaches us that, and it also is a story about one whose true identity is concealed from most anyway, and is only revealed to all when the time has come to save God's people from their enemies. That is when Esther appropriated the power and the influence of her crown. She acted when her people were threatened because she, had the best interests of her people in mind. That is when she sought to encircle them, so to speak, to surround them and to use her influence with the king. 
so that others might be spared. Which now brings me to my final thought. There is another who desires to save his people and to serve their best interest. And like Esther, his true identity has been obscured to many of his own. But who, at the time when his people need him the most, will reveal himself from heaven, as it is written in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 and 12. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. So with that, I want to thank you for joining me as we discuss this word Keter, crown. Look forward to seeing you next time. Shalom. Like what you're hearing? Become a Bill Cloud Premium Partner to watch or listen to hundreds of hours of teachings and resources on demand. Go to BillCloud.com slash subscribe to start watching today.